0: Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Dopamine was first made in the lab in nineteen ten by two British scientists, George Barger and James Ewins. It is named dopamine because of its precursor, which is L-DOPA. However, it wasn't until 1958 that the Swedish scientist Carlson showed that dopamine was more than a precursor, but was itself a neurotransmitter. Carlson won the Nobel Prize for that work. Dopamine is involved in so many of our biological activities, and we know that many problems arise when there is too little or there is too much of it. Andrew Cutler is a psychiatrist in Central Florida who has worked both clinically and in research with the dopamine system. Dr. Cutler, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Abby. It's a pleasure to be here. What is dopamine, and why is it so important? Sure. Well, as you've
1: beautifully, I think, summarized and outlined, dopamine is a ubiquitous chemical. It's a neurotransmitter, and it's not only in the brain. It's used throughout our body to help regulate biological processes, ranging from very important things like pleasure and motivation and reward behaviors to more mundane things such as maintaining our blood pressure and cardiovascular tone and regulating the contraction of smooth muscles. So it is one of those really foundational chemicals that I think makes life possible. I tend to think of the brain and nervous system more in terms of regulation and modulation, I should say, rather than simply turning on or off. Dopamine is one of those chemicals that's incredibly important for regulating and modulating a variety of processes. What we're coming to understand now, like norepinephrine and like serotonin, it is one of the primary neurotransmitter chemicals that allows nerve cells to communicate with each other. And as you know, we have trillions of nerve cells in our brain and throughout our body. It's very important that we can regulate the transmission of information and think more in terms of transmitting information, processing information, and then using that to regulate our reactions to things and regulating biologic processes.
0: Do we know why it goes out of balance? Is it something like diabetes? I think that whenever you have something that's this complicated,
1: there's always lots of ways for it to go wrong. And sometimes I find myself wondering how it is that it ever seems to go right and stay right for a while when it's this complicated. There are a variety of different ways that conditions, diseases, if you will, illnesses can arise from dysregulation of dopamine. There are genetic factors, we believe. There are certainly environmental factors. There are things like diet and lifestyle that can affect this. Uh, So similar to diabetes or similar to cancer, there's probably a combination of factors that for for each different individual, it, it depends on... How much is genetic, for instance, there are some people who are much more genetically predisposed to these illnesses. But if you're talking about an illness like schizophrenia, which we know is very much the result of dysregulation of dopamine, you're talking about a mysterious illness that has uh, some patients with schizophrenia have largely genetic contributions and some don't. The classic study that was done at the National Institute of Mental Health looking at monozygotic identical twins. And what you found was that only 50% of the identical twins of an affected patient had schizophrenia. So clearly it's not 100% genetic, but there is quite a large genetic contribution. It's 50 times that of the general population. I think that we're talking about because this chemical is so vital and ubiquitous that there's a variety of ways that we can have illness that's related to it.
0: Are we comfortable in saying that schizophrenia is at least in in large part, the result of too much dopamine. And it leads to the following question. Is that Mm -hmm. just a problem in certain sections of the brain? Because it's a genetic thing. Wouldn't there be dopamine excess throughout the brain?
1: When I first started doing my research training about 30 years ago now, I was doing research on dopamine receptor pharmacology. And at the time, I was very much a student of the dopamine theory, schizophrenia. And you mentioned Arvid Carlson. Uh, He was one of the main proponents and there were others. I studied in a lab under a gentleman who had uh, studied under Saul Snyder, who was one of the other really giants in the field at the time. And the dopamine theory of schizophrenia really is one of those theories that comes about kind of reactively from the fact that in 1950, Thorazine was discovered, uh, Thorazine is chlorpromazine, was discovered to be a relatively effective antipsychotic. And what was found was that chlorpromazine was a dopamine D2 receptor antagonist or blocker. So people theorize, well, there must be too much dopamine in the brain. But what we realized as we went further was that there was too much dopamine in parts of the brain, namely in the limbic system, the temporal lobes that have to do with emotions. And we think that's what causes the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, the hallucinations, delusions and such. But then it was recognized, and Carlson was one of the main people who realized this, there was too little dopamine in other parts of the brain, especially in the front part of the brain, in the frontal cortex and this seemed to be related to the negative symptoms of schizophrenia and the cognitive impairment and the mood. And the mood, by the way, was recognized from some of the earliest writings. If you go back to the classic German at the turn of the last century, Kraepelin and Bloiler and others, they were wonderful describers of what they observed. They didn't have a lot of interventions or medications, certainly. But from the very beginning, uh, schizophrenia was recognized to be a disturbance of mood as well as uh, cognition in others. So we've really known for a long time that dopamine is involved with with our mood, with our perception of reality, with the way we interact with the world, with, again, motivation, reward, pleasure-seeking behaviors, our social interactions. So people with schizophrenia, of course, are profoundly disturbed in these areas and profoundly impaired, sadly.
0: You talked about the dopamine receptors, and this can become very complex very fast. D2 receptor was the one that was related to the concepts associated when Thorazine came out, but now we have 1, D2, D3, D3, D4, D5. Tell us a little bit. Are, how do they play roles in in the manifestation of what dopamine should be doing to our body in a normal manner?
1: Well, I think it's incredibly important for our audience and uh, for for clinicians in particular to understand certain concepts without worrying about getting too too detailed and turning everyone into a scientist. This is similar to how other chemicals work in the brain. The chemicals in the brain that act as neurotransmitters we're finding don't have just one receptor that recognizes dopamine. There are different subtypes of these receptors. In this case, you've mentioned there there's five families of dopamine receptors, D1 through D5. And sometimes when we discover these, we aren't as sophisticated. So for instance, D3 and D5, I have some things in common. Suffice to say that probably what we're recognizing is that there's different receptor subtypes in different parts of the brain and that they are responsible for doing different things depending on where they're located and which type of receptor. So interestingly, even though they all recognize dopamine, it is possible to synthesize chemicals or discover chemicals that only bind to one subtype or a couple of subtypes of these receptors and not others. This provides for an incredible amount of complexity. Again, the concept here in regulating the flow of information and regulating process. Let me use a simple analogy. If you have two nerve cells trying to communicate and transmit information, if you simply have these two nerve cells be like wires that are spliced together, you wouldn't have an ability to regulate one wire, the current flows, and then it goes immediately to the other wire and off you go. By using a process where we we transfer electrical information from one neuron, when it gets to where the two neurons want to communicate with each, other is we know that they don't touch. There's the area called the synapse and what you do is you transfer this electrical energy into chemical energy and so for instance you can have a dopamine or norepinephrine or serotonin and this signal comes along and prompts the release of that chemical which then floats across the synaptic gap and binds to receptors which then can turn on or off the other neurons nearby. And then this chemical energy is then converted by that other nerve cell into back into electrical energy and then the information flows on. Now, this appears to be an inefficient way if you're just talking about the speed of information, but if you're talking about the regulation, it's an incredibly elegant way to do it because it provides for a lot of of sophisticated control and regulation. And this is why the brain is so incredibly complicated. In the model I just described, you can have the classic receptor is the post. Synaptic receptor that I just talked about. So, dopamine is released by the presynaptic neuron, floats across, binds to the postsynaptic neuron. However, it's much more complicated than that. There are receptors on the presynaptic neuron, for instance, that can act as regulating receptors. So, in a situation where, let's say, you have too much dopamine, you want to be able to turn this system off, like a light switch, you want to be able to turn it on and off. So, a regulatory presynaptic receptor, if there's too much dopamine, might eventually bind to that receptor, and then that would turn turn down or shut off the release of dopamine and therefore allow you to regulate this flow of information. Having different families or subtypes of receptors and different locations relative to the synapse, but also in different parts of the brain. An example would be, for instance, we fortuitously discovered these D2 receptors. They're largely localized in a couple of parts of the brain that are important here. The limbic system, we have a lot of D2 neurons there, and we have a lot of D2 neurons deep in the brain in the striatum, the basal ganglia, which we used to think was only regulating movements or coordinating movement. We now know it's far more important for regulating many different things, including emotion and attention it helps process and regulate these things. So this, of course, is the part of the brain that's so important for Parkinson's disease or Parkinsonism because that area is loaded with D2 receptors. And classic Parkinson's disease is that dopamine neurons die for some reason and they project into that area. And so you don't have enough dopamine coming in because the nerve cells have died. So you don't have enough dopamine chemical. And then you get this dysregulated movement that you see with Parkinson's, whereas you can cause Parkinsonism by using a D2 blocker or D2 antagonist medicine such as our antipsychotics, especially the older ones. And in that case, there's plenty of dopamine, but you're blocking the receptor and these drugs can compete for dopamine at the receptor. And now what you end up doing is creating the same clinical situation as if you didn't have enough dopamine. This brings to mind the fact that we originally kind of thought about the concept of too much or too little dopamine, but we now know it's much more complicated. It's too much or too little dopamine transmission or dopamine function. There might be lots of dopamine, as I mentioned, but problems somewhere else in the system that makes it so that
0: the dopamine system isn't working properly. One of the problems that we constantly run up against is prolonged substance abuse, cocaine, methamphetamines, and so on. And what these do to the dopamine system, they just push it and push it and push it and push it to the point that we lose the ability to regulate.
1: Yes. And so you've mentioned another another area where dopamine is so important. So some of the conditions that psychiatrists deal with, some of the clinical areas that we can work with that are probably related to dopamine dysregulation, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, Parkinson's, and substance abuse. What we're talking about are people who probably have difficulty regulating dopamine or possibly something wrong with their dopamine system. Many people will try substances in the teenage years of 24 Or someone who does not seem to have the proclivity to substance abuse, they may try it and say, oh, well, that felt good and, you know, I'll go on my way. There's probably quite a bit of genetic or other predisposing factors. So somebody who's predisposed may try it and go, wow, I really like this. My brain really likes this. So there's a concept of self-medication for some people, but what happens is dopamine, as I mentioned, is involved in pleasure and motivation and reward. And there's an area in the brain which is in the limbic system, the place of emotions called the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens is loaded with D1 receptors and I forgot to mention when we were talking about the D2 a minute ago, there are also D1 receptors in the front part of the brain, not so many D2 receptors in the front part of the brain. So the D1 receptors are involved with the nucleus accumbens, with pleasure, with motivation reward. And so what happens with these people, we think, is that they have a disturbance in their motivation reward system and the pleasure center. And so when they get this dopamine, I mean, their brain, of course, we all like feeling pleasure, but these are people who really have trouble with especially holding pleasure sensation in their brain with delaying gratification, with anticipating reward. They just can't do those things like uh, people who have a regular dopamine reward system. People who don't have these predispositions can think about, if I can get this done, then I can get a reward later or I can then do something fun later. And they can imagine what that feels like. They can hold that in their head. They can have the memory of that the sensation. People who seem to be predisposed to substance abuse can't seem to do that. Once they get that thought in the head or they get a little bit of the taste of something, they've just got to have more. They can't stop. So it's as if these people can't moderate or regulate this process. So they they keep going and going and going. And we've heard stories, of course, there's experiments of rats who will keep pushing a bar to get a cocaine pellet over and over and over until they die. So as you've clearly said, these people will, will keep driving the system until it breaks down. And what happens is nerve cells are very good at adapting. And the brain seeks homeostasis and equilibrium, if you will. So if you change a signal or change something that's going on, the brain will try to adapt and accommodate and find a new level of balance. But if you're continuously bombarding it with high-potency dopamine or something that stimulates dopamine very strongly, more strongly than a physiologic thing would, you end up overwhelming the system and it breaks, if you will. It's very hard to fix. And these, what can happen is you end up creating what we call tolerance where you need greater and greater stimulation to get the reward. It just gets greater and greater and spins out of control until eventually it's neurotoxic. Too much, You know, it's the old saying, too much of a good thing. It's kind of what our grandmother taught. Us. You know, it's everything in moderation.
0: The dopamine system is even involved with eating, and there's a pleasure. We, we get hungry, we get around food, and the dopamine yes. goes up. And as we begin to eat and we fill our stomachs, yes. a normal person actually can see a reduction in the dopamine, and that's a normal biological process. And that could be one of the things that you're talking about in some people, for whatever reason, yes. it doesn't work. It doesn't work. They can't seem to get enough dopamine. They just can't
1: seem to shut that off, so they don't get the normal sense of feeling full or having enough of something. They're not dated. Any pleasurable behavior, something I always say is anything you can do that's pleasurable or fun is raising dopamine. So you're absolutely right that eating is one of them. And so su- substance abuse is one way, but there are people who become addicted, if you will, to food. There are people who get addicted to exercise. There are people who get addicted to risk-taking and risky behavior and what we call adrenaline junkies, if you will. But compulsive gambling, for instance, is probably the same kind of thing. It's a dopamine dysregulation.
0: Dopamine is related to chronic pain. Dopamine, is related to certain types of anxiety and depression, it's it's ubiquitous. Yes, it is
1: very ubiquitous, even more so than I first realized 30 years ago. So I really have stumbled upon a very rewarding career because I went from studying dopamine in a, in a preclinical fashion, a basic science way, I took that into the clinic. And so I've been doing clinical trials, as you know, and clinical research in mostly conditions that are defined by, that seem to be related to dopamine dysregulation. And as I've gone through my career, that list keeps exciting. Expanding. Uh, you mentioned pain. We now know that dopamine dysregulation is is very much integral part of fibromyalgia. And so I've done fibromyalgia trials now. And most recently, I was involved with some binge eating disorder studies. I'm extremely proud to say that recently there was a press release from Shire. The results of these trials were very positive. And so we may, for the first time, have a medication FDA approved. For this condition binge eating disorder, there's currently nothing FDA-approved to treat this. So it can be very rewarding working in this field.
0: Dopamine is made from amino acids, phenylalanine, and tyrosine. Can we modify the dopamine levels by changing our diet's well, absolutely. That's probably
1: partly what is going on for certain people who have trouble regulating the food because certain foods seem to be more able to stimulate dopamine or to give you that pleasurable sensation. And a lot of it has to do with what we call comfort foods. If you think about people who eat a lot of carbohydrates or chocolate and part of what's going on with chocolate is chocolate contains a family of chemicals called methyl which are related to caffeine and cocaine. They are stimulants and they give a pleasurable kind of stimulating experience and, and stimulants help with dopamine. They help increase dopamine release. Very possible that that's that's the case much like we think about, we hear stories of people eating a lot of turkey or drinking a lot of milk and this gives you a lot of tryptophan which is converted into serotonin and makes you sleepy. The brain doesn't know the difference between legal and illegal or too much or not enough. The brain feels this chemical that is somehow helping it to correct something or to help with a balance of something that's not in balance. Try to take a very non-judgmental stance towards some of these problems people have with impulsive behaviors, impulse control, and regulation. And if we can help them with medications that help balance the system out, then they won't have to get it in other ways.
0: And a perfect way to end a very interesting and so complex topic, Dr. Andrew Cutler is a psychiatrist in Central Florida, and as he noted, he has worked both clinically and in research with the dopamine system. Dr. Cutler, thank you so much for being with us.
1: I feel like we only scratched the surface. We really
0: did.